Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Sport is a big part of Australian life, not just in terms of following the big events and professional leagues like the AFL, but also, and more importantly, how it engages community. We know too, though, that there have long been imbalances in the kinds of sports that attract prominent coverage and in the typical voices we hear across the sports media landscape. The Wheeler Centre is running an event tomorrow night with a stellar lineup of guests set to tackle these issues. It's called Ahead of the Game, Sports Storytelling and Symbolism, and to tell us more We're joined by one of the panellists, Rana Hussain, and Rana wears many hats. She's Diversity and Inclusion Manager at Cricket Cricket Australia, sits on the Collingwood Football Club's Anti-Racism Committee, and regularly appears across the media, including on the Outer Sanctum podcast. Rana, great to have you on Triple R. Well, you do wear many hats, um, as as we said just before, but I think that the best place to start this conversation is with all the sport that happened over the weekend, in particular Wimbledon and Ash Barty's incredible win. Of course, Dylan Alcott also winning his second title there. Um, what are your mm. reflections on that? Oh, gosh. Well, my first thought is I'm so sorry to anyone who follows me on Twitter because I was just going off. <laughs> um, it was so exciting and amazing. And I just cannot think of the last time our country's kind of gotten together and gotten around someone like that without any controversy or conflict or it was so wholesome and wonderful and beautiful and uh, gosh she's amazing and then she topped it off with um in the press conference saying it, I just think it's better to be a good person than to be a good tennis player like you just you couldn't get a better you know role model I guess yeah, she seems to just be so balanced and, you know, surround herself with, yeah, wholesome family and all these things that, I mean, I guess over many years, you know, there's been concerns that, um, you know, big stars in sport are sort of cotton wooled from, from the rest of society and the world, but, but she seems to have her feet firmly on the ground. She really does, and I think this is something that those of us who are really into women's sport have known for a while now, which is... Female athletes and people who are involved in women's sport just tend to be absolute legends. (laughs) Now, I know that's quite a sweeping statement, but I I see this across the board in the sports that I've worked in as well, that the athletes themselves, it may be because they've had to fight that little bit harder or put up with, you know, lesser, less interest or less support around them that they seem to be really down to earth really good people and just there to do their best and and be humble about it I don't know it's just it's something that a lot of us in women's sport talk about all the time about what good character we do see on and off the field yeah, well, what does that speak to, I think? Because, I mean, I think that makes total sense that women have, have, you know, had to work a lot harder to get to the top and um, and also work through the general lack of coverage of women's sports as well. How do we as a public, do you think, relate to um, female sports people and particularly, you know, very successful sports people such as Ash Barty? Well, it's funny, isn't it? Like, I think we love a winner in Australia. So, I mean, if you're winning, I think people are behind (laughs) you. But I I don't know. I think the tide has turned when it comes to women's sport and women playing sport. 
it just seems that it's come of age now and there is such an appetite for it. I mean, women's cricket is huge and, you know, the Australian women's team, cricket team are the most loved team in the country. Um, the stats are actual stats around that. <laughs> People love them. So I think... We're, I think something's turned when it comes to sport and people are just loving seeing the equality and I think that's what it is, that it does stand for a lot more than, you know, we think it does, but people see opportunity and positivity when it comes to women's sport and that's a double-edged sword actually because, you know, you'd also, you don't want women to feel like they have to be perfect and and you know, moral goddesses to <laughs> succeed. Mm. You just want them to kind of get there on their talent. So um, it is a tricky space at the moment for women still, but I think the tide has turned when it comes to watching women in sport. Do you think the tide has turned with some of the other traditions? Like I guess there's a photo that's being shared quite widely with uh, Ash Barty in front of the, the kind of um, – the, the winner's board at Wimbledon and, mm. um, you know, there's Miss A. Barty written there and and also, um, you know, there's kind of a red circle around some of the, the past winners um, where they've actually put Misses and their husband's name instead of their own name, um, you know, back in uh-huh. the 80s. And, I mean, yeah, wh- what do you say to that about the sort of traditions uh, in some places like Wimbledon? I mean, that- yeah, that was mind-blowing, and I think so many people were saying, well, I get that for 1950 maybe, but 1980 seems really late to still be, you know, crediting women um, to their partners' names. I mean, I think that's the problem, and I think that's the challenge that women in sport face a lot, and anyone sort of coming from the outer of sport, I suppose, that a lot of the sporting structures and systems and institutions and then traditions have been set up by a really niche group of people when we think about it. You know, white, heterosexual, cisgendered men in general are the ones that set up these structures and elite sporting structures. And so now what do we do when that's broadened out and a lot of us are participating whether it's in administration or on the field do we shoehorn ourselves into it or do we create new systems and structures and you know I think that that Wimbledon board was just a clear kind of example of that of oh how do we feel about this this is very weird and I think you see that all over the place in sport and I think you know we're in that moment now where we start to create new traditions or challenge some of those older ones. Yeah, we've seen, I mean, the AFLW be such an incredible success um, and, you know, playing such a positive role for LGBTQIA plus inclusion in, in the sport of AFLW and AFLM as well. Um, but it's also sort of interesting that we no longer have any female coaches at that level too. And I was yeah. sort of reflecting on, on the AFLM and, and how there's long been, you know, very high participation rates of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players, but, you know, very rarely as coaches and, and holding sort of senior administrative roles so does that sort of speak to some of these I suppose systems and institutions not necessarily being changed even though there are sort of positive things happening in in certain areas? I think so I think that's at the moment we're still rolling out a model when it comes to women's sport that is just women's sport is the carbon copy of men's sport and okay go action Um, and 
when you do that, then you do get things like no female coaches because you then go, okay, well, the men who are applying now for these jobs are more experienced and we see them as more valuable um, when it comes to on-field performance and then we miss out on a whole bunch of other people who could be brought into the system and the system could be more malleable for and so you know I think that is a massive problem now or it's a challenge for the AFL um, to really consider and it frankly won't change until we do something specific for that bringing actively bring women into the coaching systems around football and we value what women bring to the table because I think again we sometimes forget that we have we all have different strengths and and we don't see it yet we can't see what a you know a full uh competition full of women coaches would look like so we have to kind of create that and and take a little bit of that leap of faith as well do you think it's happening at the junior level runner i know that you know i was involved a couple of years ago in a my, my daughter was playing um afl in a in a community league and they ran training specifically for women to to be coaches but also umpires because they saw that 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 was lacking and the confidence was lacking I guess rather than the ability and and so that was active in that particular club but are we seeing that being more widespread because I imagine that is an entree for a lot of people through the junior leagues. Absolutely and I think that's probably sometimes where you do see progress in some ways taking you know, larger steps than you do at the elite level. You know, when we get to the elite level, winning is the primary focus. And so it's sort of that winning at all costs mentality. Whereas I think in the uh, in community, there's a little bit more bandwidth to try new things and to give people a go. Um, and I would love to see that filter up. We, usually we talk about things filtering down and out into community, but that's probably one of those things that I would love to see the elite competition have more of. Speaking with Rani Hussain, um, all about uh, an event she's appearing at called Ahead of the Game, Sports Storytelling and Symbolism happening at the Wheeler Centre tomorrow night. And I'm interested also in, in your sense of sort of the, the commentary and, and media landscape because there's some incredible panellists on this event that you're part of. One of mm. those, are uh, Kato Halloran, of course, um, hosts the show Kick Like a Girl here on Triple R, the fantastic AFLW show um, uh, at the start of the year. And, and, and what's your sense of sort of uh, whether there's any more sort of access and and diversity across the commentary and media landscape. Oh, we uh, we just had a little chat. We just had a little chat beforehand um, about you know what we're going to talk about, and we stumbled across the fact that there's such a sisterhood going on at the moment when it comes to media and sport, and particularly in women's sport. And I think that that is just such a breath of fresh air programs um, like the ones that Siren Sport run, like the one, like Making the Call, um, give new people a go at reporting on sport and women a go at reporting on sport if, you know, maybe they haven't had the confidence or, you know, someone opening a door for them. Um, it's women coming together to help each other out, which is frankly so counter the narrative that we often get around women in sport in the media which is you know women are pitted against each other and um you know wags and all that kind Mm. of stuff 
the reality is actually women are working together in such a positive way and are building a strong community for each other and are actually pushing down barriers for each other. And, you know, that also spills out to social media where people are gathering and saying, okay, I can see so-and-so getting trolled. Do you want to jump on and support them? I mean, you know, the reality of being a woman in sport and sports media can sometimes be very grim and and but the story there is that women are supporting each other. Gee, that's really positive to hear. And I mean, you uh, were recently appointed to um, Cricket Australia as Diversity and Inclusion Manager. I'm interested in your experiences there because I, I guess we hear a lot about a lot more uh, about diversity and inclusion in AFL um, and. Um, you know, what, what's happening there at Cricket Australia, Rana? Oh, gosh. Look, I'm two months into the job and the biggest surprise for me is that there's so much happening at cricket. I think um, cricket has been sort of quietly working away at being being more inclusive and open and opening up themselves for new and, and even older communities who have been here who've loved cricket for a long time but maybe just haven't found their way in um i think cricket is a whole you know a whole other world when it comes to elite sport there's so many competitions and um it's international it spans different you know states and territories and so there's just so much to work with um but we do have a really we do there is a tradition of it being very exclusive and and closed off for a lot of people. But I, what I see is a lot of work being done to break all of that down and to open up a lot more. Um, and I'm, you know, I wouldn't be in there if I didn't feel like there was hope for that to change. Yeah, and I'm interested also in your role um, on Collingwood Football Club's anti-racism committee, and I'm invested interest, I am a Collingwood fan, um, but uh. that, that was assembled, of course, after the complete mishandling of the Do Better report and and how it just, you know, really didn't sort of feel like there was a um, necessarily a, a proper recognition of, of the hurt and, and trauma that players and, and those working at the club had experienced in the past. I'm interested in, in what it's like sort of embarking on this sort of change that's long overdue within an organisation. How has that sort of functioned so far? It's a really, really big job Um, and it's complex and messy and by nature just going, has to be that way. You know, we're talking about systemic racism, which doesn't, you, you can't just kind of make a checklist and then hit them one by one and tick them off and it's fixed. It's, it is insidious and it's hard to sometimes pinpoint or even explain. And so, you know, that's the challenge of doing this work. And, you know, I can say that the intentions are absolutely there and the desire to do better and do right by people of colour is absolutely there. But how do you do that? It's, It's so complex. So I think it's a process of, you know, people getting around a table really considering all what will work for us. And ultimately, you know, how do we honour the experiences of people who say they have felt racism, you know, at the hands of this club? And I think, you know, that's, that's the best starting point and, and that's certainly where we've started. Um, and so there's some really kind of... 
there's some real sort of structural stuff that we talk about, but there's also the bigger picture conversations. Um, but, you know, it's tricky because Collingwood is one club and it exists in a broader system that also needs to address these issues. So um, I guess the short answer is it will take a while. It's not going to be a quick process. It's going to be very nuanced and um it's not going to happen overnight and we just have to be invested in it for the long run. And I know, that, I mean, you can't speak for everyone and everything runner, but, I mean, this is one anti-racism expert group. Are there, is this likely to, to become kind of more normalised, I guess, in sport to have um, groups like that? I don't know. I mean, that's a really good question. We, we do, you do get the sense that, um, there are people watching this process to see how it's how it rolls out and what the outcomes look like um, to then potentially implement it um, at their own clubs um, and leagues. So, I mean, I'd like to think that people uh, have the appetite now to do this work. Um, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, it can be simple too. It can be just listening to people when they say, look, this environment doesn't feel safe um, and just being open to having the conversation. I think there's, there's, I don't think there's perfection in this pursuit. I think there's just trying really hard to do the right thing and, and being open to listening. And so I hope that that at the very least is what's being emulated across all of sports. Yeah, and when, when so many of us interact with sport on a daily basis, it's really important that, that all these things are being done and, and um, being properly considered and moving us to a better place. It's been really wonderful having you on the show um, this morning, Rana, and giving us a bit of a teaser of some of the things you might talk about tomorrow night. It um, sounds like a really fascinating event. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I hope you have some good rest. You, like many people, I think, have not slept much last <laughs> night. <laughs> no, I haven't. I've got two coffees sitting right next to me. So nice. Get them into you. <laughs> Uh, cheers. Rani Hussain there, talking all about an event um, she's appearing at run by the Wheeler Centre. It's called Ahead of the Game, Sports Storytelling and Symbolism. Uh, at 6.30pm it kicks off. It's a live in-person event, which is very exciting, and other panellists include Joanna Lester, Courtney Hagen. It's hosted by Ange Pippos and Triple R's very own Kick Like a Girl host and sports journalist Kate O'Halloran is going to be involved as well. So head to the Wheeler Centre website if you want to head along. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Fossil fuel energy continues to come under pressure in Australia. Uh, battery announcements are getting bigger and it is now law in Australia that Australia's Environment Minister has a duty of care to Australians under the age of 18 to avoid causing personal injury or death arising from emissions of carbon dioxide into the Earth's atmosphere. Cam Walker is with Friends of the Earth. And last time we spoke with you, Cam, we talked about this court case where a group of students took the federal government to court claiming negligence over the approval of a coal mine expansion. And um, now it's been, we've, we've had the, the deliberations come out of the court. Can you kind of update people again on, on what this is about? 
Yeah, this is an amazing outcome. It was in the federal court, and um, as you say, the the, the judge found that um, the Australian government has a duty of care to young people. Um, the argument that was run by the government was, well, this particular coal mine, which is an expansion of a coal mine up in kind of northwest New South Wales over the ranges in the Gunnedah area, if people know that, was really only a, a drop in the ocean of global emissions. So if they stopped it, it wouldn't make any difference. But then the argument turned to the fact that, yes, but climate change is a result of cumulative action and you need to take action on individual cases because otherwise you can't actually have any impact. So it's a pretty amazing outcome. I think there's been something like 1,600 of these sort of climate litigation cases around the world and people probably remember the one that Friends Earth ran against Shell and we won recently uh, in the Netherlands. So there, there are some wins. But here in Australia, you know, this is absolutely groundbreaking and the fact it was driven by a bunch of school kids uh, kind of makes it even more inspiring because they're the ones that are going to be impacted by climate change um, as they go through their lives. I was interested to read uh, when I was sort of having a look around um, reporting on this case, Cam, that in Australia climate litigation is, um, I, I guess, something that, that's happened quite readily. I think we're second to only the US in, in how often um, sort of the, the courts and the legal system has been used as part of, um, uh, you know, preventing coal mines from being uh, established and that sort of thing. Why do you think that, that this has happened sort of particularly in Australia? Sadly, it's because of the failure of the federal government. Um, look at the number of cases that happened under Donald Trump while he was president um, in places like Europe where they are more progressive on climate policy and there's more action, there's less uh, climate litigation. So it's it's a result of failure. And, you know, the, the key story we have on climate change is that, you know, the world is getting on with it and business is getting on with it and the state governments are getting on with it. They all have net zero emission targets by 2050 already and the community wants it. And there's this growing frustration because the federal government just kind of keeps going in circles and not doing anything and backing fossil fuels. So climate litigation, even though some federal ministers get angry and say, oh, these activists are, you know, engaging in lawfare against major projects. People are only doing it because of the sustained failure of the federal government. Um, and unfortunately, while there is continued failure of leadership on climate action, cases will need to continue. And so this is broader than one particular project, though, isn't it? And is that why perhaps the Australian government is appealing the, the decision? Yeah, well, um, this was spe specifically about that project up near Gunnedah, but it set the precedent. And as we know, once you've got a precedent, then, you know, multiple cases will flow from that. Um, they announced very quickly that they were going to appeal it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, that that is very informative in its own right, that the government would appeal against a finding that says it has a duty of care to uh, not injure young people. I mean, the, the optics of that really aren't great. And, I mean, we've seen, you know, business um, you know, and banks, for instance, being reluctant to invest in new coal mines, kind of reading the, the writing on the wall, I suppose, with, um, with what's going to happen in the future as emissions reductions policies are taken up around the world. With the added threat of legal action and, and successful attempts in the court to prevent coal mines from being established such as this one, does that sort of serve as an additional blockage to coal mines thinking, uh, you know, fossil fuel companies thinking that it might be a viable option to continue down the road they've been on? Oh, 
Absolutely, and there's multiple points of pressure, of course, both externally and internally, and lots of people in big business get it, um, and you know, and that's why they're buying so heavily. They're assuming that there will be a carbon price at some point. If they work globally, then they're, you know, operating in markets where carbon prices will be um, introduced, um, and so they're opting in on a voluntary basis to, to carbon offsetting programs. Like, people get what's going on. It's really only the ideologues now that are, you know, pretending that nothing is happening, but there are multiple points of pressure on the decision makers around where investment money goes and whether it goes into coal and gas and oil, which increasingly is going to end up as a stranded asset, or emerging technologies that are now commercially viable, like renewables, efficiency and storage. You know, there's a bunch of questions I have around the technologies, but I, I don't think many people would realise that there's what what's called a de facto carbon price operating in Australia. And I was reading recently in Renew Economy that the what's called the Australian Carbon Credits Unit is actually going up in price and has passed $20 per tonne for the first time since since um, the Abbott government dismantled the Gillard government's carbon price back in 2014. Can you sort of talk around what these sort of de facto carbon prices are are doing um, for investment in things like offsetting in renewable energy and the like? Yeah, so... um Companies, particularly operating in an international context, and most of the big energy operators are understand that you know there's going to be a price on carbon, and so they're opting in voluntarily here. And it is a program that was facilitated through the federal government's emission reductions funds and what they called the direct action policy. So if people remember back in the Tony Abbott days, he was like, we're going to do practical things, you know, to protect the climate um, rather than worry about policy decisions like uh, carbon pricing. Uh, But it has actually led to um, a lot of these, um, as you say, the the carbon credit units being sold and that's pushing the price up. Um, If you buy these credits internationally, they tend to be much cheaper. Here in Australia, um, you know, it's been sitting, I think, at about $20 a tonne, but now there's some uh, analysts suggesting it could go up to $50 a tonne by the end of the decade. Some people are stockpiling the credit so they can, it's like saving them up for future use, um, and that is driving up the price, but it does. Um, directly put money into things like protecting um, existing biodiversity, so avoiding deforestation. It does put money into tree planting, into revegetation. It does put money into uh, methane containment. You know, the methane that's in old landfills can be collected and and, and uh, basically used um, renewable energy and so on. So um, there's many critiques of carbon offsetting, and particularly if we, you buy them internationally, sometimes they've been connected with environmental destruction and human rights abuse. So our argument is if people are going to do it, you know, they should buy them locally. So it is good to see the price going up locally. Yeah, and look, there's a bunch of other things that would be worth touching on because, again, they're not... big issues in um, progress with regards to renewable energy and the like, but don't really make headlines. And that, I mean, can you update us with what's happening with offshore wind, Cam? Because I know that there's been a project on the cards um, off the coast of Victoria for some time that's still proposed but not able to get up. Can you tell us what's happening there? Yeah, so this is getting to be scandalous um, in my opinion. The federal government has been sitting on the proposed federal offshore wind laws for a couple of years now. There are 12 proposed 
proposals around the country for um, offshore wind projects. We don't have any here in Australia. There's many around the world. We don't have them here because they're not currently permitted in Commonwealth waters because there's no laws that are, allow a proponent to put up a proposal to have it accept. Um, and, you know, it's hard to see this as anything other than anti-renewable ideology that's driving the energy policy of, of our country. Um, it was promised that by mid-2021 at the latest these wind laws would be released and they're still not out there. Um, there's 12 proposals that are just sitting there that can't go anywhere and the one in Victoria, the Star of the South, there's actually two but the main one and the advanced one, the Star of the South, has got a kind of, as they called it, a bespoke approvals process. So the scoping document for the environmental effects statement and the environmental impact statement has just been released for public comment, uh, you know, a, a year and a half later than it should have, but it's good to finally see that. And this project is going to be huge. You know, it's going to, uh, once it's up and running, generate around 18 to 20% of Victoria's energy mix. And it offers some really fantastic opportunities for people currently employed in offshore oil and gas and manufacturing opportunities in the Tro Valley. So it's an immensely important project. It will create, you know, 2,000 direct jobs during construction. You know, it's going to have a massive impact on our state, a beneficial impact. And we just need to get on with assessing these projects and making sure they are robust, making sure they're not going to cause environmental harm and making sure they're in the right place. You know, we can't have these farms everywhere, but there are places where it's going to work. And it's just, as I said, it's scandalous that, you know, we still don't have a national framework to assess these projects. Yeah, and, and we haven't spoken to you since the, the change in leadership in the National Party, Cam, and, and you mentioned Latrobe Valley, of course. Um, Darren Chester is the MP representing Gippsland down in that direction. What's your sense of, I guess, the political dynamics with that change and people like Darren Chester being removed from their portfolios um, with these sorts of projects kind of there ready to be um, to be advanced, but, you know, there's, there's a hold-up given the federal legislative environment. How do you see those dynamics playing out? Well, it's been fascinating to see the response from, from some of the Victorian national MPs. Uh, Steph Ryan, for instance, who represents Northern Victoria, came out and said, our constituents want us to do more on climate change. So, unfortunately, with the shuffle, it went from one climate denier to another climate denier, and the, the leadership of that party has kind of done a U-turn and is heading back to the 1950s when it comes to energy policy and climate change. And I, I really think that, you know, people in rural areas get it. Most people understand that climate change is real and that's creating this kind of pressure up into the coalition but unfortunately at this point it is very much aligned as in the federal national leadership is very much aligned around not doing anything on climate action and continuing with a kind of business as usual approach to coal mining and oil and gas and you know that that isn't good for the climate and it's certainly really not good for most people that live in regional Australia. Cam Walker's with us. He's with uh, Friends of the Earth. And, um, I mean, just um, finally a bit on a bit more on technology, uh, Cam, and where we're at with it. So the things, you know, big offshore wind projects like the ones that you were just describing, are they now required to be backed up by batteries? Because um, the batteries are just getting bigger all the time uh, and are ending up in, in regional parts of the country. Uh, are we likely to see that sort of... Um, uh, development happening alongside offshore wind? I don't think they're required to, but they certainly will be backed up by batteries. We're starting to see um, proposals in the Latrobe Valley, for instance, which is a great place for, for energy storage. 
storage. Uh, there's plans to build a big battery uh, down there already and a couple of others on the books. So more and more batteries are really good at balancing out the inputs to the grid on a day-to-day basis, but also putting energy in when the spot price is low and then selling it when the spot price is high. So if a gas generator goes down or if you've got a really hot day or you've got a you know a blackout or a brownout. So batteries are just one of the mixes that we will be dealing with in the future. They're becoming ever cheaper and they're becoming ever more common. And uh, the Victorian government has been back in the rollout of batteries, which is fantastic. And Geelong will soon be home to the largest uh, battery in Australia. Uh, it's going to open in Geelong later this year. And just lastly, Cam, um, there are wildfires raging on sort of around the west coast of the US once again. They're experiencing a real sort of horror heat wave over there. Um, I guess from your perspective, watching from afar, what's your sense of, I guess, the the devastation of of what's going on, but also how the sort of public discussion is is happening in relation to climate change being a, you know, a potential factor in, in, um, you know, the, the excessive temperatures we're seeing at the moment? The heat dome that um, Canada just experienced has been linked very clearly to climate change. There's already a bunch of work that's coming out about that. And we know that under climate change, fire seasons will get longer and more intense. And the USA has suffered from a number of these really bad seasons. So, you know, anyone with a clear eye can see the hand of climate change in this, and that is backed up by science. Um, Of course, it often goes into the culture war conversation that climate change isn't real, so it's just a natural event. But I think that more and more people are realising that these sort of extreme weather events where you really can't fight fires are becoming more common. And everyone here, of course, remembers the awful fires of 2019-20, and, you know, this is the future. And there's some really important detail here for us we share resources, that is, planes, with North America. We don't own a national air fleet of what's called large air tankers to fight fires. We lease them in from North America. So as North America seasons get longer, it's going to get more expensive to lease these planes in. And there was a call from the Royal Commission into the 2019-20 fires that Australia set up a publicly owned air fleet. And to my mind, it really makes it clear we need to get on with that. And also we share people. So we send crews overseas and they send crews here in bad years. But of course, COVID has made that more difficult. So if climate change means longer and more intense fire seasons, we need to get our own planes here and we need to be mindful of the fact that we can't be relying on large numbers of overseas firefighters coming here to help us. I think 2019-20, we had something like a 1,000 firefighters came from overseas and we can't send our people there. So we are in an entirely new world in terms of fighting fires and I think that's another very good reason to think seriously about taking meaningful action on climate change. Well, all of those things are massive wake-up calls, aren't they? Thanks so much, Cam. Thanks. Uh, Cam Walker, he's with Friends of the Earth. And um, a bit more detail on some of those um, discussion topics on the Friends of the Earth website. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 
And for many people, the era of five days a week in an office are pretty much over. Hybrid working arrangements with a large number of days at home are increasingly the norm. Uh, there are also trials happening in Iceland, Japan and Spain for formalised four-day working weeks without a cut in pay. Could we see this happen here? Well, Professor Anne Bordol of uh, Swinburne University has been looking at the studies to date and it's great to have you on Triple R and good morning and welcome. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. And it's um, we can't not start, I guess, in what the what the pandemic has wrought on the working week. Um, how permanent a shift do you think we're experiencing um, with uh, the sort of split hybrid working, perhaps less hours in an office, perhaps less hours overall? Oh, I think it's here to stay. I don't think you're going to be able to put the genie back into the bottle. Um, I, what we've actually shown in the, in, in, in the last year, 18 months is that people can work effectively from home and um, people have got a taste for that. And we know that they can work effectively as well. What does it mean for kind of productivity and, and I suppose uh, work-life balance as well? And because I know, you know, some people have enjoyed having a bit more flexibility and, and getting to sort of really, uh, you know, get into some of their work at home and maybe not attend so, so many meetings. But there's also, you know, a difficulty, I suppose, in delineating um, your work from your home life. Yeah, that's a really good point. What we found in the study that we did in Swin- at Swinburne was a number of the, the benefits were there that, people, that you'd expect. So people were, were, were saying, look, we don't have as long a commute time, um, we're getting to spend more time with our family. But the other part of it, the other side of it, was that they were having more difficulty switching off from work. So I think that's, you know, because if you're at home, you know, the boundaries aren't as clear as when you're having to actually leave that physical workplace. So that's one issue that's, I think, something that we need to look at. And so, I mean, what are the kinds of studies that you've been doing? Well, one of the, we've actually been doing uh, a couple of studies. One, we actually surveyed people straight after the, uh, you know, in the first couple of months about how they were finding work from home. The other thing we've also been looking at is the four-day work week uh, as well. And you probably, um, you probably have heard of, as you introduced, the Iceland study. And that, that's only just sort of come out, which was a, a study that was over four years, uh, introducing the four-day work week to a large number of people living in uh, workers living in Iceland and overall the study has found that they've reduced people's working hours to between 32 to 35 hours a week from a traditional 40 hour week but they're also uh, finding that the productivity of of those people has been maintained and there's a range of reasons for that I mean one of the things is uh, less stress, less anxiety and um, prevalence of burnout. But also uh, they've found that there's been fewer sick days um, and uh, the, but the productivity is actually held up. So uh, it's a very, very positive um, outcome we've seen at a, at a, in a major study that's been done in this area. And, and my understanding in that study is that people didn't get a 20% cut in pay by not working five days and dropping to, to four days. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. That bit so, sounds good yeah. because often when people work four days, yeah. they feel like they're working five days in, in four, but they're actually only paid 80% of a wage. So that, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, you're absolutely right. So I, I, I know that, you know, sort of 20 years ago, 
sort of doing a four-day week and uh, uh, when I was sort of, you know, working with, with young children and that's exactly what I found. All, all that was happening is I was just being, I was tending to work the same amount of hours but having to, to uh, get less pay. In the Iceland study, they did not reduce people's um, pay. What they did was reduce their hours. They, there was an expectation that pay would be held up, uh, sorry, that their productivity, I should say, would be at the same level. And interestingly, people responded to that. And part of the reason, I mean, a number of reasons, but people felt they had more energy to do the job. They felt more, uh, they reported they, they felt more attached and engaged with actually working, which had this sort of benefit of actually, you know, making them more productive. And I was interested to, to read around this study as well and that one of the reasons that Iceland was prompted to run these trials was because it was seen as kind of lagging other countries in the region. So are some countries in Scandinavia already working with this kind of four-day-a-week model? So people kind of, you know, um, aren't necessarily doing more work than they should be per day but are getting all of that done within four days? Uh Look, you're, you're right. Iceland actually introduced the study because they were working longer hours than the other Scandinavian countries. Mm. So they wanted to see, look, can we, can we actually, will this actually work in Iceland? And it's a relatively small population. So countries such as uh, Sweden, which you traditionally associated with, the, you know, uh, more flexibility, were, cert- uh, you know, were certainly um, in front in terms of, of this. But I think what's been, you know, re- and I, I really hope we can sort of put this on the roadmap here in Australia, is actually thinking about how we can be more flexible in the way that we actually work. And that the idea that we have to trudge along to a, a, an office every day, for, for those who, who, who work in, in that sort of traditional white-collar um, working environment, is not, does not necessarily mean that you're going to be more productive. You know, um, and maybe because I, I really am taking this seriously um, and that people, you know, that, that the working model could change. But practically how does it work? Do, like in, in the trials, are people working the same days and having a similar day off or how does that actually play out in, in a working week to retain the productivity and, and also get these uh, wellbeing um, indicators up? Yeah, uh, good, really good point. Um, what they did, they did this study across a range of industries and different types of work uh, occupations. So it did vary of, in terms of how people actually took that reduced hour. Some people it would be an actual, you know, uh, working uh, for longer days and having a, a day off, and that day would vary depending on the needs of the organisation, so, which were, were negotiated with the employees. So it could be a longer, you know, a three-day weekend, or it might be the day off was in the middle of the week, say, for example, Wednesday. In other companies, what they actually did was they reduced the working day, and that working day could be down to sort of five hours. But people still reported that there were a number of benefits of doing that because they got to spend more time with their family or to do, you know, other activities, whether it be in terms of exercise or Sounds like a school day, doesn't it? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so it, you've got, the, there were different ways, when you actually drill down in terms of what the study, there were different ways that that reduced working hour played out in different organisations. 
Professor Anne Bordol is our guest um, from Swinburne University of Technology. We're talking all about the four-day work week and trials that have been run in Iceland in recent years, including in uh, Japan and Spain as well. And, uh, I mean, as you say, it sounds like things are very much shifting, whether we like it or not, Anne. And I read today in The Age, the chair of the Productivity Commission, saying that the five-day working week is effectively dead and and businesses are talking about um, sort of continuing with hybrid models where workers don't necessarily need to be in the office all the time. In New Zealand, we've heard of Jacinda Ardern um, flagging an intention to look at the four-day work week, but I haven't so much heard this being spoken about in Australia. So on one hand, there's new models emerging, but is there any momentum towards looking at uh, sort of reducing working hours so people can be more productive but also have uh, better work-life balance? Look, I have to say, from where I sit at the moment, I'm not seeing the discussion in Australia about a four-day work week. What I am seeing the discussion about in terms of uh, the the organisations we've been interviewing is a hybrid work week. So actually two days uh, working at home, three days in the office or, or some sort of variation of that. But I really, you know, it would be great if we could actually get some momentum to have a discussion. Do we actually need to work you know, a 40-hour week to be as productive. Can We've actually shown that we can, you know, there are studies out there that are showing that people can be just as productive if you, but more energised by actually reducing their work hours. So I'd love to see that on the agenda. Yeah, and I went, I mean, I, I, I'm imagining that, that um, people that run businesses in in, CB, in the CBD in Melbourne but other sort of central business districts uh, around the state or towns or things like that, um, some might think that this sounds like a good idea and others uh, might be worried about it. Um, are we seeing, will, we, will there be flow-ons, do you think, from this hybrid way of working? Look, I, I think uh, uh, for the employees, yeah, I think there's an, an, a number of obvious benefits. But I, I think the the other thing is I just would say let's have a little bit of caution about saying everything about working hybrid working weeks or um, not having to go to you know into a physical office is all positive. We do, uh, and, I, and I come at this from you know talking to some of my. You know, uh, students who, who who say, look, you know, when I go into, it, it, I used to love working. I'd love the Friday nights going out after work and catching up with my office um, um, mates, and that's not there anymore. So there's that socialisation aspect of work as well, and I think I don't, you know, I, I think organisations are starting to think about, well, how do we actually, how do we maintain that that the very important social aspect that work also provides and of course when we look at um, major cities such as you know Melbourne or Sydney um, you know we've seen a, 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 a huge reduction in, in, in uh, employee traffic which obviously has an impact on businesses there. Yeah and I mean we've, we've learned as well that a Zoom meeting is not quite the same as catching up in person it's um, it can kind of be a poor <laughs> substitute in a lot of cases but um, in terms of the research you're doing into this um, and where's it sort of leading to do you think there's any prospect of of doing trials around this in Australia to kind of look at it seriously? I do know that there are some companies that are actually doing it. Is is that momentum? Uh, I mean, this is talking about a reduced work week. I think many organisations around Australia are, are looking at are working in a hybrid form at the moment. Um, uh, particularly if it's work, you know, where you've got work that. Uh, 
enables people to be able to work at work at home to do part of that. So that's already there. That that you know we're we're seeing that in many organisations at the moment. Whether or not that discussion goes to a reduced work week or reduced hours work week, I sh- should say, I don't know. There are certainly some companies that are, are pushing it, um, but I haven't seen the momentum, momentum at that sort of national level yet. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And if um, my household is anything to go by, there's still a desk in the bedroom. There's one taking yeah. over the lounge room and we haven't ever really thought about it being permanent or not permanent. Just It just is at the moment. Hello. But um, let's see how it formalises. Um, thanks so much, Anne. Okay, thanks a lot. Great uh, to talk to you. Likewise, I'm Professor Amber Bardol and she's with Swinburne University and a bunch of studies happening. It's always interesting to see fresh new research. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.